Now, as we talk about a heavenly scene, I just want to mention that we've had two saints recently go home to be with the Lord. Uh, Jerry Roday uh, recently uh, passed away and is now with the Lord. And um, last night, Thad Lowry uh, went home to be with the Lord. And Thad is uh, the gentleman that comes here. He usually has the cane with him and is a little, he has some trouble seeing. But I, I was, we were in there praying earlier and, and I was saying, now Thad can see clearly. And he's seen the face of Jesus, and we're grateful for that. But uh, keep uh, Corinne in prayer and the Rodet family in prayer, if you would. After these things, Revelation 19.1, I heard, as it were, Revelation 19.1, a loud voice of a great multitude. They're in heaven, notice, and they were saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. After these things, Revelation 17 and 18, we see the destruction of Babylon. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. We saw a political system and a religious system. We saw it kind of given in a beast, uh, a beast leader known as the Antichrist. And we also saw this depicted in a woman who is depicted as a prostitute or a harlot. And she rides on the beast, rides on the the, the back of the political system, if you will, and there's been all kinds of conjecture about what this will look like in the last days, but we saw her fall. And uh, when she fell and she was burning, we saw people from the different trades, shipmasters and people who you know, made their wealth from her, and they were standing at a distance and weeping and crying over Babylon, the great city that in one hour her demise, her destruction has come. And that's how we ended chapter 18. She had spilled, verse 24, the blood of prophets, 1824, and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. She's responsible for a bunch of damage and she's been judged by God. After these things, what's in chapter 17 and 18, namely, as it were, I heard a loud voice. Now the world's weeping over Babylon's demise but the great multitude in heaven, we saw this, uh, a group in heaven in Revelation 7, 9 through 17, when we studied the 144,000 and the great multitude, some of you remember that teaching from Revelation 7, and the great multitude was in heaven, they had palm branches in their hands, and they were singing salvation songs to God. And some people believe that's the tribulation saints I believe that's the raptured church. I believe it happens exactly where it needs to happen, between the sixth and seventh seals. And you can go back over the teaching and look at that. But this great multitude is in heaven, and they sing or they say, hallelujah. Now, if you look at that combination of, of words there, look at, you see hallel, and you see yah at the end. So you have basically a word in the scriptures that means Hallel means praise, and Yah is a noun for the Lord. Or a way you could translate hallelujah is praise Yahweh. So whenever you say hallelujah, amen, hallelujah is praise Yahweh. Praise the Lord. And it's quite unique because in this particular section of our Bibles in the New Testament, I think that this is the only place, and it's actually four times found in six verses, hallelujah, that it's even in the New Testament. 
It's found many times in the Psalms. I think as many as 22 times in the Psalms. And I'm going to show you a few what we call hallelujah Psalms. But this particular phrase or expression of praise is unique here. And this is what the church or those who are in heaven say. They say hallelujah, praise Yahweh. Salvation, notice what they praise him for. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. They're celebrating the demise of Babylon. Why? Because Babylon has corrupted. Babylon has done a bunch of damage to the world. In fact, if you take a peek at verse two, it says, because they're praising God because his judgments are what? They are true and they are just or they are righteous. God, when he makes a judgment, what you can know is it's always gonna be true and it's always gonna be just or righteous. Will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? The answer is yes, he will. His judgments are true and righteous for he has judged the great harlot, Babylon, who was corrupting the earth with her immorality and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants or his bride on her. Babylon has corrupted the world and Babylon has persecuted the church. And this is why, you know, many scholars, commentators look at Babylon as the system of the world, the anti-God system. And there's been two primary areas where she has corrupted. She has corrupted in the area of religion and she has corrupted in the area of sex. She is described as one who has a cup full of abominable things. She has distributed her immorality all over the world. And, and as mankind, as history has unfolded, two of the most powerful areas for mankind are simply in the area of religion and sex. Or you could say religion and intimacy. Religion, when it's done correctly, and there, are, there is, the book of James says, there is true and undefiled religion in the sight of God. It is to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. That's James 1, I think it's verse 27. So there is a pure and undefiled religion, and religion at its essence, when it is right, and I'm not talking about religion in quotes, because we often, as Christians, we talk about a relationship and not religion. I know what we're saying there. But religion, when it is true, when it is right, is about a relationship. In fact, religion is to know God. It's to know God. And think about this idea of knowing. So religion, at its best, if you want to say a spiritual life, a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, is to know God. This is eternal life, Jesus says, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. John 17, 3. This is what it's about. Eternal life is to know God. And so when Satan, through the Babylonian system, gets into religion, what does he do? He twists it, he distorts it, so that people end up not knowing God. They end up getting a false bill of goods. There, people are told, the way you get to know God is you do these 20 different things. It's your good works. The way you get to know God is through meditation, through karma, through this, through that. And ultimately what it does is it get, brings a false system so that people are religious without 
the true essence of religion. Everybody with me? Satan has been working in counterfeit systems from the beginning of really the, the, book of the, the, the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. He's been corrupting. He's been selling lies. It's been said that Satan joined the church, in quotes, a long time ago. Cults, the occult, world religions are all systems that say this is the way that you can know God. But Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, right? So in, when you think about just logic, you can't have two belief systems that contradict one another and then both be true. You can't have Jesus saying, I'm the singular way to God, and another system saying, there's many ways to God, many avatars, many ascended, enlightened people, many paths. Those are two contradictory ideas. Now, in logic, they can both be false, but they both cannot be true. Does everybody understand what I'm saying? You can't have two plus two equal four, and somebody else say two plus two equals five, right? Now, somebody could say two plus two equals five and two plus two equals six, and they could both be wrong, right? But two plus two equals what? Four. And it doesn't depend on how you feel about it. I don't like it. I want it to equal five or 4.6. It doesn't matter how you feel about it. Two plus two equals four. Jesus says, I'm the way to God. You say, well, but people have made, a lot of people have made religious claims, but have they risen from the dead? Have they said, destroy this temple, my body, and in three days I will raise it again and backed it up? by what we call the immutable fact of the resurrection that in the very history in which we live, Jesus rose from the dead. In fact, those who have tried to disprove the resurrection say there's more evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ than for any event of antiquity. And these are from some of the most brilliant minds that have ever crossed the stage of human history. So you don't have to check your brain at the door, but you do, all of us have to wrestle with these ideas. To know God, religion. Babylon has had a system from Genesis 10 where they tried to build a ziggurat, a tower of Babel. The mother-son cult has come through time with all these different branches to Egypt and India, to uh, all the Babylonian religions, the Greek religions, the Roman religion, the pantheon of gods, the mystery religions. They're all there. And Satan is very happy when people buy into them because then you're religious but lost. It's very seductive. In 2 Corinthians eleven two, if you'd write this down, Paul says, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband, that to Christ, that I might present you as a pure virgin. If you read and study 2 Corinthians, you will note that Paul's argument about their virginity has to do with purity of theology. Please hear that well. Paul's argument in 2 Corinthians is that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Why? To distort 
to confuse, to sell his lies, we shouldn't be surprised. We should not be ignorant of his schemes. So Paul says, I want you to be pure doctrinally. I want to present you as a pure virgin to the Lord Jesus Christ. And a purity that goes with that is sexually. What the devil has done is he has corrupted religion and sex. Religion is how you know God. Sex is how you know, in quotes, your spouse. See, God created a way for us to know him, and God created a, a way for us to know our spouse. And in these two areas that God created to be the most powerful, sacred areas of life, the enemy has gotten in there because he knows the power of them. Think about the power of religion. Think about how many people have gone cuckoo off the bridge with fanaticism, thinking that they're the Christ. We've had some crazy things happen. And much of it has been energized by Satan. And think of all the corruption now in the sexual area of life. Two powerful areas, a way to know God, a way to know your spouse. And Satan gets in there and he knows the power of them. He knows how powerful they can be. And so he corrupts them. That's what Babylon is. Babylon corrupts what is holy. It corrupts what is good. It corrupts areas that are sacred and powerful. Can you see it? This is how the enemy has worked through time. And so when the church sings hallelujah to the fall of Babylon, it's saying the corrupting influence has finally been dealt with. The lies have finally been dealt with. The blood that has been spilled has been avenged. Hallelujah. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Romans 12, 19. I will repay. Don't take matters into your own hands, loosely translated. God says, because vengeance belongs to me. I will avenge. Vengeance is not bad. Distorted vengeance is bad. Vengeance that goes too far is bad. But God's vengeance is just and true. So when someone gets what they deserve, and look, mercy and grace, we all revel in it. But if someone fights God all the way to the grave and they get what they deserve, it's gonna be just and true in God's sight. A couple of Psalms. Turn over to Psalm 146. These are what we'd call hallelujah psalms. They're at the end of the Psalter. The Psalter is the book of Psalms. It's just a word to capture all 150 psalms. The Psalter. Uh, you might live with a person that you'd call the Psalter. Maybe they put salt on everything, but... <laughs> the, way, the way you could talk about these psalms is that they all begin and end with hallelujah. They all begin with, begin and end with Praise the Lord. Take a look. I'm not going to read them all, but I'm just going to show you a few highlights. Psalm 146, opening verse. What's it say? Praise the Lord. Look at the last verse. What's it say? Praise the Lord. That's another way to say hallelujah. 147. Praise the Lord. It is good to sing praises to our God. It is pleasant and praise is becoming. Praise is good. Praise is healthy. Go to the end of 147. It says, he has not dealt thus with any nation 
And as for his ordinances, they have not known them. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Psalm 148. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all stars of light. Praise him, highest heavens. The waters that are above the heavens, let them praise the name of the Lord. For he commanded, and they were created. Ooh, that's power. Amen? Praise is good. There's, I was reading uh, Henry Morris. He's got a commentary on Revelation. He was saying that Psalms 146 through 150 may depict what's going on in heaven in heaven in Revelation 19. Just an interesting thought. Maybe they parallel each other. Look at the end of Psalm 148. It ends with praise the Lord. Psalm 149 opens with praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song and his praise in the congregation of the godly ones. Skip down to verse uh, six. Let the high praises of God, 149.6, be in their mouth, a two-edged sword in their hand, to execute vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the judgment written. <clears throat> this is honor for all his godly ones. Can you say it? Praise the Lord. And then finally, Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty expanse. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him. Oh, if you play the trumpet, you're in. Praise him with harp and lyre. Praise him with timbrel and dancing. Praise him with stringed instruments and pipe. Praise him with loud cymbals, all the drummers said. Amen. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. One more time. Praise the Lord. There's the hallelujah psalms. It may parallel what's going on in Revelation 19. Maybe this is a little bit of insight of some of the detail of the praise. But the praise is going up because God has judged righteously. Turn back to Revelation 19. Psalm 96 says, the Lord reigns. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar in all it contains. Let the field exult in all that is in it. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord, for he is coming, for he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in faithfulness. That's Psalm 96, 10 through 13. So God has judged. He has avenged his people. In fact, he has avenged his bride. Babylon has beaten up his bride, persecuted his people, shed the blood of saints and prophets, men and women and children. It's been a terrible thing that Babylon has done. She has ensnared the earth. Anybody who was against her, she got rid of. She would not put up with Christianity. Leon Morris quotes somebody named Torrance, and he says these words about bearing in mind the constant readiness to be corrupted. This is the way he puts it. The world likes a complacent, reasonable religion. And so it, all, it is always ready to revere some pale Galilean image of Jesus, some meager, anemic Messiah, to give him a moderate, rational homage 
The truth, the truth is that we, often, we have often committed adultery with alien ideologies, confounded the gospel with religions of nature, imbibed the wine of pagan doctrines and false principles and deceitful practices. We have sought to bend the will of God to serve the ends of man, to alter the gospel and shape the church to conform to the fashions of the times, close quote. This is what it means to be in bed with Babylon. It means to compromise the core values of the church. Who is Jesus? Who is God? And how is one saved? It is to compromise core doctrines of family and government and faith. This is, this is the area where the church has been challenged throughout the millennia. A second time in heaven, they said, Revelation 19, 3, hallelujah. We'll see it four times. And they say then, her smoke rises up. Babylon's smoke rises up for how long? Forever and ever. Now, I've been trying to make the case for a praise song. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. Amen. She's burning. <laughs> Little echo. But, you know, I'm not sure. It's, it's probably not the best <laughs> praise. Although in heaven, you, you should get used to it because apparently you're going to be asked to join in. All right? She has been dealt the ultimate death blow. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. What does that mean? Write down Revelation 14, 11 in your margin because... We see it again there, and it's one of the strongest cases for judgment being eternal. There are others who say that you can't necessarily pack that meaning into these verses because it's speaking maybe more of the fire, but it does seem to indicate of her judgment that it is an eternal judgment. It's, it's a hard thing to take, isn't it? The idea of eternal judgment. But judgment pre precedes renewal, one of the scenes I was thinking of as I studied this is uh, Narnia when Aslan is on the move and the white witch finally gets tackled by the lion and he does it. And you're like, yeah! Because she has made it winter and never Christmas. She's awful. She, she tricks, who's the brother with the Turkish delight? What's his name? Edmund. Edmund, Edmund, Edmund. A little Turkish delight. What's your Turkish delight, by the way? Oh, you say, what's Turkish delight? Is that like turkey with some sort of, no, it's, it, it looked like some sort of dessert, which is one of my major weaknesses. I don't know if there's anybody else out there, but anything with frosting on it, I'm pretty much like, yeah, I'll start my diet tomorrow. The 24 elders and the four living creatures, verse 4, fell down. We saw them earlier. You can look at chapters 4 and 5. We believe that the four living creatures are some sort of high angel. We saw that earlier in Revelation 4. The 24 elders is up for debate. But they all who are near the throne of God, they fall down. And they worship God who sits on the throne. And they said, Amen. Yes, to what was just said in verse three, Babylon's been judged, amen. And look at the third time, 
Hallelujah. How patient has God been with Babylon? How patient has he been with mockers? How much persecution has God let people get by with? How much blood has been shed of the church? Too much. And when God avenges that blood, it's going to be just and a long time coming. He's been extremely patient. Then will come to pass what the church has prayed for that Jesus taught us. Thy kingdom come. The day of the Lord will come. 2 Peter 3, 9 and 10. But God is patient. He's not willing that any perish, but all come to repentance. So he's waited, he's waited. But now praise is going on in heaven and a voice came from the throne. Whose voice is it? Some people believe it's the voice of Jesus. We don't know for sure. But the voice says, give praise to our God. All you, his bondservants, that's doulos. You who fear him, the small and great. Oh, don't stop now. Praise the Lord. Give him the sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips, giving what? Thanks to his name. Don't ever stop praising. Ever. Keep the praise going strong. Because God will bless you. Keep the praise music going in your office. Keep the praise music going in your car. The Bible says God inhabits the praises of his people. There's something beautiful and strengthening about praise. That's why the enemy tries to keep you from it. That's why there's all these things going on and you can be distracted or you get to church late or you're not sure that you want to raise up your hands. Somebody next to you is raising them up. You're not sure. You're not sure if you can do the whole wax on, wax off thing, right? That's all right. Even if you think your voice could be offensive to those around you. And we've heard some of you, and it is. <laughs> but we believe. It's not in the Bible, but this is from Second Opinions. That God has a filter in heaven. And you sound good to him. <laughs> Give praise to our God, you who fear him. You know the way you keep from, ba from fearing Babylon? Babylon's carrots, Babylon's threats, is fear God. And keep his commandments. You know the book of Ecclesiastes ends this way? When, it, when you come to the conclusion of everything that the writer, the preacher, shared in the book of Ecclesiastes, one of those interesting books of the Bible, he said, fear God and keep his commandments. This is the duty of every person. For God will bring every act under judgment, whether good or evil. If you fear God, then you won't fear things that you don't need to fear. If you fear God, you won't have to fear Babylon. Because what's the worst that it can do? God secured your eternal hope, right? But so many people, they walk around in fear of Babylon and its system and what's gonna happen to me if I really am strong as a Christian and they let that fear keep them from walking out God's plan for their life. Is that you tonight? Have you let fear keep you in this, this little box do you think that that's where God wants you? He doesn't. He wants you to walk in faith. And so, fear him, small and great, whoever you are. 
Fear the Lord and you won't fear the wrong things in your life. You won't fear people's opinions. Are you a people pleaser? Do you live and die with what people think of you? I got news for you. The moment you end up pleasing the one group that you think you haven't been pleasing, another group will be unhappy with you. It's just the way life works. And I heard, verse six, as it were, the voice of a great multitude and as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty peals of thunder. He thought heaven was kind of loud to begin with, but check this out. Now there's a great multitude. It's a lot like verse one, but now their singing and praising is like the sound of Niagara Falls or even more, the sound of mighty peals of thunder. Do you guys remember it wasn't that long ago that we had kind of a pretty loud thunderstorm? Does thunder freak anybody out? Thunder is a weird thing, isn't it? And, uh, you know, I think when some of us were growing up, our parents used to say that the angels are bowling in heaven. Anybody hear that line? That's, what's, what's the thunder? What's going on? The angels are up there. Bowling in heaven. Well, that's, <laughs> that doesn't even sound good. I was going to say that sounds good, but it doesn't even really sound good. But you know what thunder may be? The angels praising in heaven. Now, I know there's a natural explanation, but you guys all get what I'm saying. They are saying hallelujah, fourth hallelujah in the first six verses. They say, praise Yahweh. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, he's the Pantocrator. This, in Hebrew, this is El Shaddai. In Greek, it's the Pantocrator. He is the creator and controller of the universe. Our God is God Almighty, El Shaddai. He is in control. He is the Almighty. Look at Revelation 1, verse 7. We'll start the book all over again. You guys ready? No, I'm just kidding. Behold, he is coming, 1-7. With the clouds, every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him, all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha, 1-8. The Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. What is he called? He is the Almighty. From beginning to end. The Alpha and Omega, the Aleph Tav in Hebrew, the Alpha and Omega in Greek, back to Revelation 19. He's the Lord, the Almighty. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. He is the controller. He is the creator of all life. And so here's what they say. We're only gonna go up to verse 10 tonight, but look at verse seven of Revelation 19. It says, let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Now, from the praise, hallelujah, choruses in heaven to a shift in the picture to rejoicing and being glad and giving God glory for a marriage, a marriage and a bride who has made herself ready. I'll talk about Shane and Natalie just for a second since you guys just got married in July. A wedding day is a, is, it's a really fun day um, because there's so much excitement and so much buildup. But one of the highlights of the day is the bride getting ready. And it's a, quite a long process, isn't it, Natalie, for the bride? You know, you, you girls, you're just that way. It just, it just takes longer. I'm gonna stop right there. <laughs> 
Why did I even go there? I don't even know. But anyway, but once the bride is ready, she's, she's done her hair, makeup, dress. It is such a beautiful, exciting thing. I've gotten, I've had the privilege of doing many, many weddings. And when the bride is getting ready to walk down the aisle, I do like to look at the groom. Because the groom, there's a multitude of reactions and bodily things going on. Beads of sweat, tears, jitters, smiles. <laughs> oh, wow. Woo. It's really an interesting thing. When we did the rehearsal, I was joking because I was, I thought, you know, I got it together. I've done many of these, but now it's, you know, my own boy. So we did the rehearsal and... <laughs> Dad and Natalie came to the front, Justo, and I said, I called them Dadalie <laughs> as a combination name. That's how frazzled I was. But anyway, Natalie, when you walk down the aisle, you are beautiful, but when you walk down the aisle that day, we're all in awe. And I know you all could make your connections here to the bride being ready. Maybe you can think of a day when that was the case for you. Oh, happy day, right? And an exhilarating moment, the bride has made herself ready. Who's the bride? The church is the bride of Christ. How do you make yourself ready to meet the Lord? There's one way. You know him. Get to know him better and better. Listen to this. The reference to the marriage of the Lamb, this is from James Hamilton, in Revelation 19.7, points to the consummation of the new covenant that was inaugurated when Jesus died, rose, and poured out the Spirit. We can scarcely imagine the glory of that wedding day. Never has there been a more worthy bridegroom. Never has a man sacrificed more for his beloved Never has a man gone to greater lengths, humbled himself more, endured more, or accomplished more in the great task of winning his bride. Never has a father more wealthy planned a bigger feast. Never has a more noble son honored his father in everything. Never has a man treated his bride-to-be more appropriately. Never has a more powerful pledge like an engagement ring been given than the pledge of the Holy Spirit given to this bride. Never has a more glorious residence been prepared as a dwelling place once the bridegroom finally takes his bride. Great will be the rejoicing and great will be the exaltation. There will be no limit to the glory given to the Father through the Son on that great day. Never has a bridegroom done more to qualify his beloved to be his bride. Never has a bride needed her bridegroom more. Never has there been a wedding more significant than this one. Never has a prince with more authority taken a bride with less standing. Never has a bride had her prince die for her, rise from the dead for her, and give to her his own standing before his father. Never has a bridegroom loved his bride more. Never has a bride waited as long for her bridegroom. Never has a bride sung more songs to her beloved. Never has there been a wedding with more guests than this one will have. 
Never has a wedding taken place on a more momentous occasion. The end of the overlapping ages and the ushering in of the kingdom of God. Never has there been a marriage like this one. Never. And you have an invitation. And in the the gospel records, Jesus tells some wedding parables. Matthew 22, he tells a story about how there was a wedding feast prepared by a father for his son and the guests were invited, but the guests began to make excuses. And they said, I can't come because of this. I can't come. And they didn't RSVP. And so the father said, okay, those guests weren't worthy. Go out onto the highways and the byways, he said to his servants, and invite people in that the wedding feast and the wedding hall may be full. And so there was a man who walked in there and he didn't have a wedding garment on. And in the ancient world, wedding garments were given to you as a guest. And he said, how did you, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And the man was speechless. And the end of the story says, there are many invited, but few that are chosen. You see, the gospel goes out on the highways and byways and people are told, come to Jesus, come in. Come into the family. Come into the wedding. And people have their excuses. Oh, I got to do this. I got to do that. I have friends to see, places to go, business to do. And then they end up dying. And then one day they're at the door saying, Matthew 25, the 10 virgins, five are wise, five are foolish. Let us in. Let us in. And the Lord says, I'm sorry. I never knew you. You see, This wedding imagery, this story from Genesis to Revelation, it really starts with a wedding and ends with a wedding. It starts with a wedding between Adam and Eve and ends with a wedding between the last Adam and his bride. And the last Adam undoes what the first Adam did. The first Adam fell into transgression. The last Adam fixes it all. The dowry that he paid for you is his own blood. And it was given to her, the divine passive in verse eight, to clothe herself in fine linen. It was given to her, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. We always have to remember that we're righteous because of the work of Christ, but the righteous things we do, you could put it this way, make the linen shine a little brighter. They show that we belong to Jesus because of the good works we do. They testify to a salvation by grace. Isaiah 61.10 says, He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Isaiah 61.10. We walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. But we make it our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be what? to be pleasing to him. Have you decided which kingdom and king you will serve? Babylon or the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you decided which kingdom and which system you're gonna be committed to? Will you do religion and will you do your marriage God's way? Will you let two of the most powerful areas of life, knowing God through your your religious worship and your marriage be about sanctity and holiness and let that be the beauty of holiness within its proper context? Will you let God define those areas for you? Well, he said to me, right, 
Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, verse nine. And some of you, you know, sometimes we read our Bibles and we go, wow, this, this is amazing. This sounds almost too good to be true. And whenever you start thinking about that, the Bible usually has something like this. And he said to me, these are what? True words of God. And I think he sensed how overwhelmed John was because look at the next verse. And I fell at his feet to worship him, to worship the angel. And he said to me, do not do that. I love that. The angel said, don't do that. I am what? What's an angel? I am a fellow servant of yours. Where I'm a ministering spirit, Hebrews 1.14, of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. I'm, I'm pointing you away from me to Jesus because Jesus is God and Jesus does receive worship. In a minute, I'll highlight just in rapid fire. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is what? It is the spirit of prophecy. Who is the one who is of God? Don't believe every spirit. Test the spirits to see whether they're from God. Many false prophets have gone into the world. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. See, Jesus Christ, the spirit of prophecy is Jesus. The whole Bible points to Jesus. If someone is going to tell you they know God without Jesus, 1 John 2.20 uh, three or two twenty two yeah two twenty three says whoever denies the son does not have the father first john two twenty three if you don't have the son you don't have the father they are a package deal and you don't have the spirit either you can you can mark medical forms all you want but the way you come to know God is through the son a great reunion day is coming in heaven. And it's the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I don't think it's going to be a boring reception. Do you know how sometimes little some receptions can get a little boring, right? You're not sure if the celebration is appropriate. Look, this is going to be like an Italian wedding. This is going to be, have you ever been to an Italian wedding? Oh, there's, there's some cool stuff that goes on there. There's a lot of dancing. People are kicking their feet up in the air. A wedding day is coming. But it's more than that. It's a reunion day. Can you believe, how much time are you gonna need to just talk to some of your favorite Bible characters on that day? Hey, David, can I just have a minute or two? Moses, what's up? Man, that's a cool beard. <laughs> I wasn't sure if you'd have it in heaven. I saw Charlton Heston with it in the movie. and I, uh... Hey, Job. Can I, what did your, do you have any pictures? Did you put anything on Instagram with your boils? <laughs> Sorry. Just imagine. But you know the, the center attraction of it all? Do you know when, you have a wedding and there's, there's family and friends there and it's, and it's all cool and you like to talk to a lot of people, but when the bride and groom come in, oh, that's the time, right? And now introducing the bridegroom, his name is the Lord Jesus Christ and his bride, oh, oh, wait a minute, that's you. See, heaven's gonna be celebrating 
the bridegroom and the bride. And the spirit and the bride say, come. Amen. So tonight, I know we're about at our limit of time, but it was really on my heart to share communion tonight. So I'm going to ask Shane to come up to the front, if you would. And uh, I'm going to ask you, I, I have to share one more. You guys okay? Isaiah 25. And Sandlin, if you're, if you're going to come up and do some music, that would be awesome. Okay, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read this passage, and then I'm going to ask them to do some worship. And we have communion elements up in the front for uh, believers in the Lord Jesus. And I'm going to ask you um, to just get up out of your seat after I read this passage and spend a little time with the Lord, just grab the elements so we can all get them, return back to your seat, and then we're gonna let some worship just play for a while, and I'm just gonna ask you to remember Jesus. Remember your bridegroom, and I just wanna read this passage to close. Isaiah 25, six says, the Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. A banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow and refined aged wine. And on this mountain, Isaiah 25, 7, he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces. And he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, behold, this is our God for whom we have waited that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation.